Good morning. Uh, some was, were commenting on that there aren't people here uh, this morning yet, and it put me in mind to something I heard John Lennox say. Uh, he told a story about a bishop from the Church of England who was going out to this small village in England somewhere, and he gave notice to the local parish minister there that he'd be coming and giving a message on a certain day. And so the day came, he turned up at the church, and there was a very small crowd. And the bishop leaned over to the minister and said, didn't you tell them I was coming? And he said, no, but the word seems to have gotten round. (laughs) So I guess the word got around that I'm here. Good morning to you. Let's turn in the Word of God to Numbers 23. Numbers chapter 23. Numbers 23. And we're going to begin our reading at verse 1. Now, this is fastly becoming one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because as we know, we've been looking at the book of Numbers this week, and it's a book of testing. Tests which show things as they actually are. Is there true faith? Is someone really a believer? Because God's not interested in hypothetical faith or hypothetical believers. He wants reality. He wants a living faith, faith that results in righteousness. And also we've seen that for those who pass the tests, that that gives confidence for greater usefulness and greater learning in God's school. Unfortunately, the messages thus far have been a little top-heavy with failure. We've seen a lot of mistakes Israel has made, and we've noted that we too make a lot of mistakes, and we can look back on the history of the church and see a lot of those mistakes repeated over and over again. That sadly is the nature of man, that we fail. And yet God comes in in grace in the scene of human failure, And this part of the book of Numbers from chapter 22 through 24 is a section that talks about a false prophet by the name of Balaam. And it's interesting how God uses this section not to talk about man's failure, but to talk about his grace and how he is absolutely committed to bless his people with everything he's promised them. And that no opposition whatsoever, even attacks from on high, even attacks from nefarious and powerful agencies that we may many times forget about. Nevertheless, the Lord can turn those attacks and turn cursing to blessing. So to me, it's a very positive part of the Word of God and something that shows not only God's plan for his earthly people Israel, but there are echoes and sentiments here that are repeated in the New Testament of the church, God's people in this age. So I want to see the faithfulness of our God. Now we'll break in here at verse 1 of Numbers 23. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Now, the situation is that there's a consortium of nations, the Moabites, who are from the east side of the Jordan River. They're in the territory of what we call today the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, or sometimes we just call it Jordan. And they're in that geographical area. There's also a group of people called the Midianites who seem to have been 
a nomadic type of people, kind of like Bedouin. They pop up at different points in the biblical narrative, connecting themselves with different people. Here, the Moabites and the Midianites come together, and they've taken note of what God did to Egypt. And they've taken note that God has brought this people Israel out of their bondage in Egypt and is bringing them up to encroach on their lands as they see it. Now, the great irony here is that God wasn't really interested in giving Israel Moabite territory, nor Edomite territory, nor Ammonite territory. That east side of the Jordan River, for the most part, was going to be untouched, with the exception of the fiefdoms of two kings named Sihon and Og. Those kings were going to be the first fruits of the victory of the people of God. And it's interesting, that's a good study on its own. I'll give you a little homework to look into. Just take a concordance or your Bible program and look up Sihon, that's S-I-H-O-N, and Og, O-G, that's easier to spell. And look up those kings and see how many times that the Bible refers back to that incident because God, in essence, as these people are coming through the wilderness, he wants Israel to know, yes, you can defeat your enemies. Yes, through my strength, your foes will topple. So remember what I did to Sihon and Og. And he continually points them back to that victory to spur them on to greater victory in the future. Now, having said that, these peoples got nervous. They said, here comes this great nation. We've got to do something about them. We better curse them. We will go to the yellow pages, or nowadays, I suppose they'd type into Google. You know, we want to see uh, profits for hire or for-profit profits, if you will. And so they find a mercenary prophet, a fellow by the name of Balaam. In fact, this man was so noted for his otherworldly powers, for being in touch with the occult. He had such a reputation for power that the archaeologists have found extra-biblical inscriptions naming this man and talking about the power that he had. Uh, it dates from several centuries after these events. So there was a memory. He was a famous person who was remembered for centuries as being some kind of powerful shaman or witch doctor or whatever you want to call him, a medium of sorts. Now, the Bible is very clear, however, that this man was not a believer. And I have met some people that have tried to argue that he is a believer. I disagree with them vehemently uh, for one reason. This isn't our sermon this morning, but I look at how the New Testament refers back to him in three passages. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Jude, verse 11, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. And all three of those references tell us two things. Number one, they tell us that Balaam was all about the Benjamins, or all about the Shkaim, maybe. All about the money, you know? Dollar, dollar bill, y'all, that kind of thing. That's what motivated Balaam. He wanted cash. And also, Balaam was one associated with error and was associated with trying to bring down the people of God. There's absolutely nothing about Balaam that bespeaks of a true believer. Now, some people say, but yes, he knew, he talks about Jehovah. He uses the name of the true God. That's right. But there's also terms used of him, like when it says in chapter 22 that they brought him the divination price, there is a Hebrew word which in the Old Testament scriptures is 
consistently and always used of false prophets. So Balaam isn't a true prophet. He is one who employs syncretism. And that's a very old tactic of the enemy. Taking a little bit of the truth, taking some true names, true terminology, and mixing it up with pagan error. I would cite for you today the modern Watchtower Society, what we commonly call Jehovah's Witness, or the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, or even the Roman Catholic Church as being organizations that take elements of truth from the Bible and even terminology which is biblical, but they mix with it pagan ideas, and the mixture is deadly. Now, I have a faithful brother here who will remain nameless. I'll just say he's among that family that proudly represent the Naval Academy. They seem to have an endless wardrobe of midshipman type attire. You know, we managed a minor display on behalf of the Iowa State Cyclones yesterday, but they've blown us out of the water. And, you know, I've hardly seen any Stanford or California, Berkeley, or... uh, USC or UCLA shirts and jerseys around here, I would bid you listen again to that great old California folk song by the Beach Boys, Be True to Your School. But anyway, this man wearing said jersey, whose initials are Jake Wilson, uh, brought me this bottle of water. And I have implicit trust in him. He's a friend of mine. He's always been very kind to me. And so fearlessly, because I'm a little dry, you say, and how, I take a drink this morning. Now let's just wander down my imagination one moment, and let's suppose that in between Jake giving me this bottle of water, which I trust is chemically composed of H2O, that that's how we could describe it, that you saw someone sneak in here with a bottle marked in big letters with a sharpie, arsenic, and they put a drop of arsenic into the bottle. Maybe more than a drop. I don't know how much it takes to kill a person. Really, not up on my poison. Sorry about that. But just for sake of illustration, let's say a drop, a little dab will do you. A drop will kill me. And you see someone put a drop of poison in my water. What would you say to me? Well, it determines, uh, it's determined, isn't it, by how much you've enjoyed my ministry this week? I mean, if you really don't think I'm that good and you'd prefer not to hear me very long, you'd say, go ahead, drink, Keith, cheers. But if you're a caring, compassionate person, as I know you are, you would say, stop. I'd say, why? You'd say, well, somebody put a drop of poison in your bottle of water. And I'd say, well, look here, this is a rather large bottle of water. And it's still 99% pure water. Isn't that 99%? That's good for me, right? You say, yeah, but it's that 1% that makes all the difference. You know, it's the same thing when you tamper with God's truth. It's the same thing with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not playing horseshoes or hand grenades here. Almost doesn't count. You've got to get it right. You've got to stick with the teaching of the Bible, the whole counsel of God, from Genesis through Revelation. Not what men have added to the Scriptures through the centuries. Not how they've taken a verse from here and a verse from there out of context and built doctrines around them. It behooves us to search the Scriptures and see, because the Lord Jesus himself told us in John chapter 5, they are they which speak of me. And to know the Lord Jesus by faith is to have eternal life. So we can't take what other people say about the Bible. We need the testimony of the Scriptures 
pure and unadulterated. That is exactly what we need. Now, they went and they hired this fellow Balaam, and uh, in good Middle Eastern fashion, there was a little bit of negotiation, which reminds me of my time in the old city of Jerusalem, when you'd be a fool to pay the first price that they said to you. And when I went down to Egypt, I very quickly learned the the word Meknun, so that when the guy told me the price, I'd say, Meknun, crazy, you know, and I'd kind of walk away. And I got very good at it, you know. I don't speak much Arabic, but when it comes to saving money, I'm a quick study. So um, that was a bit of negotiation. But finally, Balaam agreed to come after God solemnly warned him that Balaam, although you're a false prophet, in this case, you're going to speak for me. Now, I'm kind of paraphrasing all the ideas that are in chapter 22, but you're going to speak for me. And unless he didn't get the message as he was on the way to fulfill the contract to curse Israel, God stopped him three times, or I should say stopped his donkey. Now, it is rather annoying when you have car problems, isn't it? You know, if you have a Chevy or a Ford or a Toyota or whatever it is, and it just starts turning the way you don't want to go. You say, I want to go right toward Curry Village, and the the car goes left into a field. You say, this will never do. And Balaam was so put out with his donkey, he said, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you. Well, it's funny he should mention swords. Because in front of that donkey, the reason the donkey wasn't going in a straight line the way he wanted him to go, was an angel, the angel of the Lord, with a drawn sword. And the donkey was smarter than the man. Who was really the donkey here? And who was the seer? Because prophets were supposed to be seers, right? They're supposed to have insight into the spiritual world. But it's a little bit of an inauspicious beginning when your seer that you're hiring to come and use his power can't see God standing right in front of him in the person of the angel of the Lord about ready to slay him. And if the donkey hadn't just lain down there in the path, slain he should have been. You know, Joshua later had a similar experience on the eve of going in to conquer Jericho, except he saw the angel straight away. Joshua was a spiritual man. He saw the angel dressed like a warrior with a drawn sword, and he said, have you come for us or against us? That's always a good question to ask when a man's coming at you with a sword. You know, you want to know, is this guy friend or foe? Like Ravi Zacharias says, if you saw six big men coming at you in a dark alley, would it be comforting for you to know that they had just come from a Bible study? And so he says, are you for us or against us? The angel essentially says, neither. I've come as captain of the host of the Lord. In other words, Joshua, I'm here to take command. And Joshua submits to the Lord right there, bows to his will. Well, Balaam had to be forcibly told the lesson, you better follow me, Balaam. You better say what I say, only the words that I put in your mouth or I'm going to kill you. Because even later conduct by Balaam shows he wasn't a believer. Because in chapter 25, having been unable to curse Israel, oh, there I've given it away, call it foreshadowing. Having been unable to curse Israel, in chapter 25, he hits on a new stratagem. If we can't get God to turn against them and curse them, maybe we can get them to bring a curse upon themselves by sinning, by getting involved in immorality with our women and falling into both idolatry and immorality which sadly happened, and Revelation 2 warns us that it can happen in churches too. And so it's a very old error, still 
commonly found today. Now, Balaam is brought by Balak to curse Israel. And being pagans, they're all about location, location, location. You ever notice that? When you talk about man's religions, the place is the thing. So you got to go to Jerusalem, or you got to go to Mecca, or you got to go to Medina, or you have to go to a cathedral, or you have to go to a synagogue, or a mosque, or whatever. And this is a more spiritual place than other places. I've been in many of those types of places, places where people get down and kiss the stones of the building and do all kinds of other strange things, because they think in that geographic locale, they are somehow closer to God. And yet the Lord Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 4, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's another reason why we must be born again if we're going to worship God. Because it doesn't matter how nice the building is. It doesn't matter how good the incense smells. It doesn't matter how nice the choir is. If you could even get the RSVs to come and play at your building, that doesn't inherently bring you any closer to God if you don't know him through the Lord Jesus Christ and have his spirit dwelling within you. Now it's not about Mount Gerizim in Samaria, the Lord Jesus says. Now it's not about Jerusalem. Now it's they who love the Father will worship him in spirit and in truth. They can do it here in Yosemite. They can do it in Southern California. They can do it in Northern California. They can even do it in Pennsylvania. You say that's grace. Amen. They can do it because God's spirit and God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. What matters is, are you connected by his spirit? Now, I want you to think about this, that as far as we know, Israel was blissfully ignorant of what was transpiring, that from the heights above them, there was an attack coming that they were unaware of. There was an enemy that was saying, curse them. You know, we are in an analogous situation. That's very much like what the church faces today. There is one who is in high places. Ephesians 6 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness and the rulers of authority in high places. There is one who is called in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. Revelation 12 calls him the accuser of the brethren. He's also known as Satan, the adversary, or the devil, a traducer, or one who slanders. The Lord Jesus called him the father of lies and a murderer. And let me tell you, he's not your friend. He is the God of this world because men cede to him authority. Men worship him even unknowingly, and he specializes, according to 2 Corinthians, in blinding men's minds. So there are attacks that come from on high. But I love to think of the fact that the Lord is committed to turn his attacks away, to deflect the would-be cursing, and to say, no, my people shall be blessed. Let's see how it happens here. Now, they build these altars and they offer these expensive offerings because, again, pagans think you've got to buy God's favor. It's all about what I put in the plate. It's all about how much I give to charity. It's all about putting in my time, coming to meeting. That somehow is going to buy God to be on my side, not on your life. Numbers 23, verse 7, Balaam takes up his first oracle. He took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? 
For, for from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him, there a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. Hmm. Now that didn't go over too well with his employer. Balak got kind of ticked off. And he said, now wait a minute, go back and read the contract. I hired you to curse them, and you've blessed them. Now, the interesting thing is, the very first time that we really get to hear what God says to Israel's great ancestor, Abraham, in the Bible, back in Genesis 12, here's what God promises Abraham. He says, I will bless them that bless you, and I will curse them that curse you. So God already declared more than four centuries earlier, Israel, I'm going to bless you. Now this man comes with his supposed power and ability to curse them. And he says, verse 8, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? You know, it's an awful thing to be cursed by God. To be cursed by God means to be separated from him to be separated from life, to be put ultimately, if we persist in that situation of being under a curse, to be put out of God's sight and out of any relationship with him in everlasting darkness. The Lord Jesus talked about it more than he ever talked about heaven. We commonly refer to it as hell. The ultimate place will be known, according to Revelation 20, as the lake of fire. And it is a place that is everlasting because the holiness and righteousness of God is also everlasting. And by the way, everlasting means everlasting. It means eternal because the same word is used in the Bible to talk about eternal life. So if eternal punishment isn't real, neither is eternal salvation. And yet the Bible consistently describes it that way. Now, as we as human beings, are sinners. The Bible says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That brings us under a curse. How can we then be blessed? Well, Galatians chapter 3 puts it this way, that the Lord is able to bless us because he, as a hymn writer has said it, was a curse once made. You see, Galatians 3, quoting Deuteronomy 21-23 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Galatians says, The Lord Jesus was made a curse for us. The Lord Jesus took that curse on the cross so that we could be blessed, so that we could have eternal life. That work on the cross was good for the believing people of Israel. It is good for the people that believe in this age who become part of the church. If you don't receive the Lord Jesus personally and have a relationship with him by faith, you are under the curse. But I'm happy to tell you, if you know the Lord Jesus, you shall never be cursed. In fact, God says of you in Ephesians chapter 1, you're blessed already with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. What a wonderful God we have. He says, curse, I can't do it. He calls him Jacob, that name that brings to mind failure, that brings to mind duplicity and all the shenanigans that Jacob pulled in the past trying to do it his way, but then calls him in parallelism there, 
Israel, a prince with God, the people positionally viewed, viewed as those blessed by God. And positionally, God says, I know their failure. I know how often they get it wrong, but I'm not going to curse them. I'm going to bless them. He says, let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. You know, if you read numbers up to this point, there's much unrighteousness in the people's behavior. And yet God looks at Israel and says, I see them as righteous. Not because God's pretending they're not sinners, not because he pretends they haven't failed, but because through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a way that their failure and their sin is put away, that it is in the words of Psalm 103, I believe it is, removed as far as the east is from the west or our transgressions and so forth. And so God views his people positionally as blessed. Now, you say, if someone believes that, doesn't that free us to go out then and live howsoever we want? I mean, if God says you're not going to be cursed, you're a believer, you're going to be blessed, then surely I can go out and live how I want, and it doesn't matter, I've got the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card, right? But see, that's a gross misunderstanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Colossians chapter 3 tells us, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth, because you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a tremendous change made in you. Where before you were dead in trespasses and sins before God, Ephesians 2, 1. Now you are alive to God. In fact, your life is hidden with Christ and God. You want to talk about security. If someone can go to heaven and can defeat the Lord Jesus or pry him open and strip your life from God, then you can be lost, my friend, if you're a true believer. But that's absolutely impossible. But what kind of life does that result in? Well, it results in us having our eyes on glory and saying, I'm united to that one who sits in the heavenlies and I'm going there. I'm going to be in glory with him. So Colossians continues immediately after those verses. Uh, he says, he finishes that little part at the beginning saying, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then we will appear with him in glory. The hope of the second coming is an impetus to sanctification. As 1 John 3 tells us, everyone that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. And so we want to live righteously. We want to be different. And in the power of the Spirit, we are being changed. So the next thing Colossians says is, Put to death, therefore, your members which are on the earth. In light of the fact that you're dead to this world, but alive to God, in light of the fact that your real life is in heaven, not down here, this is how you should live. Not a lustful life, not a covetous, idolatrous life, not a wrathful life, not a proud life. And he enumerates a number of sins. No, you're to put off all these things and you're to put on the new man, the kind of life that the Lord provides for us by his spirit. So positional truth, how God views his people, which sees us as himself presenting us in Christ, which sees us as we will one day be in glory. That is meant to spur us on even now in real time, so to speak, that phrase we use, even now to live holy lives. May God help us to do it. I wonder about your death. Does that prospect hold great fear for you? 
Now, don't get me wrong. I don't really want to die. I mean, dying looks painful. It certainly can be very painful. God puts within us, he hardwires within us a sense of self-preservation. And for someone to deny that, for someone to get to such a state that they take their own life, there has to be a deep spiritual malaise, a deep problem in their soul to bring a human being to that level because God writes within us that desire of self-preservation. We don't want to suffer pain. We don't want to be hurt. We don't want to die. But death is another thing. What comes when that final moment comes? What comes after this life? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to guess. You can say the Lord Jesus has tasted death for every man. You can say, oh death, where is thy sting? Oh grave, where is thy victory? Because the moment you pass out of this life, you're going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians 5. I was telling some earlier at the prayer meeting this morning that when my father was dying, a very slow, excruciating death from the complications of diabetes and various diseases that he had, that in his final moments, my brother Larry Price, who's been here as a speaker, was with us in the room, and it was my mother and Larry and I, and we were quoting hymns and quoting verses of Scripture. And my final words to my father were these. I said, Dad, remember what the Lord Jesus said to that thief on the cross. He said, Assuredly, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And as soon as I said paradise, my father took his last breath. And that greatly encouraged me. I said, Thank you, Lord. Because one moment my dad was hearing about paradise, the next moment he was in it. If my dad were here, I can confidently tell you, because I knew him as well as anyone knew him, save perhaps my mom, and he would tell you, he's not in paradise because of what he did or who he was. He was in paradise solely because the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because Christ died for him and rose again from the dead and gave him that gift of eternal life. That's why my father could say, I'm going to paradise. And that's why he wasn't afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of crossing over into that next world because he'll be with the Lord. But with you, it might not be that way. You might say, I'm not sure. Or you might say, I know I'm not right with God. Let me tell you, my friend, this life is very uncertain and it passes away all too quickly. You need to settle it with the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to get right to God. Come to the Lord Jesus today and be saved. Now we look at the second oracle in chapter 2 and we'll have to step lively here. Uh, Chapter 23, rather. Verse 18. Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I've received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. For there's no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey 
and drinks the blood of the slain. Now, being a good thoroughgoing pagan, pagans tend to think that gods are like men, that they are malleable. You can bend them to your will. You say the right prayers, you go on a pilgrimage, you throw some money at them now and again, and you can get God on your side. That's absolute rubbish, of course. So he took him to another high place, another place where they were supposedly close to God. And he said, now try it from here, Balaam. Maybe it was a bad spot before. Try cursing him here. And Balaam uh, lets go again. And instead of cursing, he blesses. And he tells him in verse 19 that God isn't like a man. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't go back on his promises. That when he promises to bless his people, he is absolutely committed to that through thick and thin, and he's going to do it. And in spite of all the twistings and turnings of Israel's failures and successes and ups and downs through history, in the end, God is going to restore them to himself as a believing people. There one day, even though it seems uh, like a, a dream today, one day nationally, they're going to look on he whom they pierced and they're going to mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That's what every person has to do if they're going to come to salvation. You've got to look at the Lord Jesus and say, why should he love me so? Why should he die for my sins? Why uh, could I be so callous and uncaring of him? Uh, he's right about me. I deserve the punishment. He didn't deserve it, yet he took it for me in grace. And nationally, they're going to do that. And he's going to come and bless them and restore them to himself and add many peoples to himself, Zechariah 2 says, in that day. So many Gentiles will come to faith through that believing nation and many more in the future millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's the same for the church. We can say we have the immutable promises of God. That the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I'm not worried about ISIS taking down the gospel. I'm not worried about the church being overcome by Al-Qaeda or by secularism or any other ism that's out there. The Lord Jesus is going to build his church and he's building it today in some of the most difficult places on earth. He's building it one soul at a time. If I may paraphrase John Houseman, the Lord Jesus builds the church the old-fashioned way. He saves people. Yes, good. Houseman never said it, but he should have. Anyway, here he says, I can't curse them. There's no power against them. Why? The central key is there in verse 21. The Lord his God is with him. You know, God says that over 200 times in the Old Testament, that he is with his people, with Israel. He says it again in the New Testament. You read Matthew 28. How's it end? Well, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or as Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. The abiding presence of God in the midst of his people. He shan't leave us. He shan't forsake us. What a wonderful God he is. Now the third oracle in chapter 24 starts in verse 3. Then he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of he who hears the word of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. 
In other words, this time, the man didn't have to put himself in a trance. He didn't have to throw a bunch of chicken bones on the floor or look at some animal's liver or look for portents and signs. He just looks to God and says, all right, God, fire away. Give me your message. And God does that. He sees it. And what does he see? Verse 5, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob. Your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Doesn't it remind you of Yosemite? A beautiful, uh, natural, lush place of wonderful natural beauty and growth. Isaiah uses a similar image. He talks about them being like a watered garden. This is how God looks on his people. He looks on them and says, if I can take a line from a Don Francisco song, in spite of what the world may say, you're beautiful to me. You people that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you think we're weird. You think we're kooky. You think a lot of us are nerds and losers and whatever else you might say. You're right about us, naturally speaking. We're not an impressive group. But here's where we're beautiful. It's what God is doing in us. It's how he sees us. It's how he sees Israel, how he's going to present them in a future day, and how he sees the church, because Ephesians 5 says he's going to present us like a bride in beautiful garments without spot or blemish or any such thing. He sees that prosperity, and he says, verse 7, his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. When we disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that prayer shall literally be fulfilled. The Lord Jesus is going to rule and reign over the earth. And he is going to be king of kings and lord of lords even here. And no one will withstand his rule. It's better to submit now. Get in on the ground floor here, folks. Join his kingdom, come over to his side, receive the Lord Jesus, because to be against him, that's a terrible situation. That only brings judgment. He says, verse 8, God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations and his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? You know, a lot of people think about Jesus, and like the Doobie Brothers said, Jesus is just all right for me, a Northern California band, if I'm not mistaken. And they think, oh yeah, Jesus, he's just the ultimate nice guy. Whatever I do, it'll be all right. He'll be fine with it. No, no, no. Read Revelation 19. When the Lord Jesus comes back to this world to set up his kingdom, he's coming back in judgment, and it will be too late. Men, according to Revelation 6, are going to say, hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They're going to call on the mountains to fall on them and hide them. But there won't be any hiding in that day. He's coming like a warrior. It's going to be violent. And God doesn't want that for you. That's why he calls on you to be saved. Isn't it lovely how Balaam ends that third oracle in verse 9? He said, blessed is he who blesses you, And cursed is he who curses you. So after all of this time and trouble and three oracles, at the end of it, he says exactly what God said back in Genesis 12. God has said, bless, and I'll bless. God has said, don't curse, and I shan't curse. He who blesses you will be blessed. He who curses you will be cursed. That's the issue. Where do you stand in relation to God's people? That's one of the signs 
of a true believer, that they love the brethren, according to 1 John. You don't love the people of God. You don't have a heart for them. That's a red flag, my friend. Take a little look around the foundation. See if you've really made sure your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Balak wasn't happy at all with how things had turned out, so Balaam gives him a little bonus prophecy, but it talks all about the Lord's triumph over the surrounding nations. And this passage of Scripture ends with the enemy being utterly thwarted, wanting to curse God's people, but being turned away. And you know what? It's the same thing that's going to happen for the church. Satan wants to curse us. Satan wants to prevail against us. But remember what the Lord Jesus said. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in, or rather what his epistles say. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Or as he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Blessed be his name. Father, we're thankful today for thy grace towards us, for the inassailable position that believers stand in in Christ. We're thankful for the future for Israel. We're thankful for the present and future of the church. We give thee thanks for all this. It is of grace. And we're so thankful to be blessed in Christ Jesus. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.